Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to the book of James this morning, verse 13 of chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus preached sermons, and some of those sermons included stories, included illustrations, and uh, those illustrations were used to make very specific points. These stories are what we call uh, parables, and literally the verb parabolo means to throw beside or to compare, so it's to throw beside something for the purpose of comparison. And so he told the following parable, which relates to our passage this morning. This is from Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one one who owed him 10,000 talents, and one talent was around uh, a decade and a half or 15 years of wages. So someone who owed him many lifetimes of wages was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Happy story if it ends right there, right? But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. So that was a hundred days wages. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. 
There the parable ends, but then this final summary statement and the point of the parable is given to us by Jesus. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I believe that statement of Jesus resonates in our minds because we have such a hard time forgiving others who have sinned against us. It seems at points almost impossible, as if it's the hardest thing that God could ask us to do, is to forgive somebody who had sinned against us. Forgiving others who have really sinned against us, right? And let me be clear, there are sins that are in some sense they should be easy to forgive. And then there are sins that we are fully convinced God would never expect us to forgive when they're committed against us, right? We think all the forgivable ones are the easy things that should just be like water off of our back. And, and yet, there are other sins committed against us that we think it would be unjust for God to ask us to forgive other people for committing. These would be the sins that were committed against us that destroyed us, that ruined us, right? that corrupted us, that shaped us, that public slander that destroyed your reputation, or infidelity and adultery of a spouse, betrayal of a friend who, who you thought was was only there to affirm you always. Uh, Abandonment by parents who choose to drink and use drugs rather than to love and parent. Verbal and physical assaults by a father, a mother, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, a current husband, a current wife. Those sorts of sins where we think we're justified in bearing a grudge, justified in holding out, uh, holding back our forgiveness. We believe in our hearts that these sins against us were of such a magnitude that it would be a disgrace to justice, right? A disgrace to justice, a betrayal of God or of God's justice if we were to forgive them. Consider if a judge in a secular court heard a case, a case where someone assaulted you and made his judgment like this. I sentence the guilty offender in this case to one year in prison and I demand that the victim forgive the offender. We think the judge was nuts. We would think that that was, that was all in unjust and the, the entire sentence was, was built um, through injustice. We'd think he had taken with one hand what he gave with the other hand and we'd have a well-oiled sense you know, of justice machine that's got into high gear and we would not want to be thinking about mercy or forgiveness or kindness at that point. And yet God says, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. That's a pretty strong, that's not a pretty, pretty strong statement. That's a strong statement. 
Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. And in the parable we just read, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you, condemn you, hand you over to torturers, is what happened, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And yet when we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? As we contemplate the necessity of showing mercy as our patches passage dictates sometimes when we say that prayer inside we sort of die we we know we're saying that hypocritically and we just don't want to say it we die inside because not only has someone's sin hurt us but it has shaped our whole outlook in some cases in our life it's shaped our thoughts it's shaped our identities it's 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 it has been hurt Every day because of somebody's sins against us. It's even shaped our own wretched sins against others. The sins of fathers visited upon his children, right? That sin against me was the seed that grew into a tree of bitterness. And that bitterness, that constant companion in our lives, forbids me to forgive. My bitterness, our bitterness... Your bitterness in general forbids you to forgive others who have sinned against you. And that tree of bitterness is watered by your anger. It's watered by your well-honed sense of justice. And it has spread its branches over every inch. It can spread its branches over every inch of your life. Yet our lack of forgiveness or lack of practicing mercy is far worse than this. Because though we justify our bitterness in these heinous sins against us, we also have a difficult time being merciful simply in run-of-the-mill, everyday, average sorts of things. Right? When we read the parable we just read, we identify with the king, not the slave. Right? We place ourselves in the role of the king. We believe, our, believe ourselves to be generous in our mercy, generous with our forgiveness, large-hearted, magnanimous right, toward those who have sinned against us. We say to ourselves, I mean, just last week I forgave someone who said something potentially unkind about one of my kids after we met for an hour and I got everything off my chest. Right? You meet with somebody, you meet with them for four hours, and three hours and 45 minutes of it is you ranting at that person, and they say one unkind thing in response, and you just can't let it go. Meanwhile, you give nary a thought to the three hours and 45 minutes that you just downloaded your mercilessness on somebody else. And then you claim afterwards, well, we practiced Christian reconciliation. No, not so much. If the hour or three hours or four hours had been spent in practicing mercy and forgiveness rather than in speaking down to somebody else, it would have been profitable. Right? We say things like, you hurt me this way and this way and this way, and, and that's not Christian. You hurt me this way and 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 this way, and that's not Christian. You hurt me this way and this way and this way and this way and this way, and you did this. And remember, three years ago you said this, 
And then two years ago, it resurfaced in this way, and this way, and this way, and this way. And that's not Christian. We need to reconcile. And, and you are so unprepared to practice mercy, to offer forgiveness, right? You want somebody to bow before you and do obeisance to you. You want them to bow before your bitterness and say, you're justified in your bitterness. Rather than really practicing mercy. Really practicing forgiveness. You hurt me this way and this way too, and you said this and that, and I know you, I know you meant it this way, but this is how I took it. Right? And you shouldn't do that. You know, I hope it doesn't happen again now that we've talked about this. You, you do better and I'll do better avoiding this situation in the future. None of that was reconciliation. None of that was merciful. None of that was forgiveness. That was lording over the sins committed against you. And so in the name of reconciliation, we heap judgment upon our brother and and avoid practicing real mercy. Perhaps in many situations it would be better not to get together to focus on reconciliation. Not to bring things out in the open. Not to work through things. Because if our meetings together are not about mercy, but about judgment, we will eventually tear each other apart. We will be waiting for opportunities to... We will, be, we will be cheering people on when they sin against us. Because then we'll be able to hold that against them. Then we'll be able to take the high road, right? And take, have the high hand in this and use it against them. In many everyday situations, someone said something unkind. Someone said something about my kids. Someone joked about things that shouldn't be joked about and hurt my feelings. Someone said something that could possibly have been about my marriage. Someone said something about my ministry and this and that. Had we simply practiced mercy, giving others the benefit of the doubt, allowing simple love to cover a multitude of sins, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had to have one of those excruciatingly painful non-reconciliation reconciliation meetings. We would forgive. We would hear and forgive. We would be hurt and forgive. We would be grieved and then be merciful instantly. right? We would be wounded and forgive. If we can't forgive one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and allow ourselves to hold grudges for years against others who hurt us because of something that might possibly have been said about us or might have even been about us explicitly, how is there any hope for applying mercy and forgiveness to those significant sins against us I mentioned earlier. How is there any hope? The Apostle Paul also tells a story about mercy. Paul served for some time in a church in the city of Corinth. It was a hard labor. It was a hard church to work in. 
It was a divided church. It was fact, there were factions left and right. Um, pride, there was sexual sin. It was just like our churches today. The situation had gotten to the point that members of the church were suing one another in secular court. That's how well the reconciliation was going in that church. They were suing and taking their problems before secular courts. The ones who had been sinned against were the ones doing the suing. The ones who had been sinned against were the ones doing the suing. And you may think, well, certain situations, that might be the, the way to go. And in certain situations, it might be the way to go. I think there's a time to sue. But not every time. And this is what Paul writes. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Right? You took your problems to the court when you should have come to the elder board. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. So Paul is pouring it on, pouring on how merciless this church is being. So the situation is one where a brother who has sinned against in some way is suing or prosecuting his brother not wanting to let it go, he's going to sue them even before a secular court. And rather than having it adjudicated in the church, they're going to that court outside the church. And then Paul says this. Actually then, it's already defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Oh man. And we hear Paul say that and we're just like, Shut up, Paul. Let me enjoy my bitterness. Let me take my bitterness out on somebody for once. For once. Just for once, right? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? And that's when it comes to money. Right? That's when it comes to money and, and no one likes to get defrauded, right? That's when we we are very tempted to take our matters before the courts of law. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to the brethren. And so that statement, why not rather be wronged? There it is. Why not rather be wronged? In other words, the one making the lawsuit had a justifiable argument against his brother. He had something he could prove that his brother had done to him and he had a well-honed sense of justice along with it, of judgment urging him to take it to the courts. But Paul says, rather than justice being served, why not rather just be wronged? Why not rather lose what was taken from you? In other words, rather than judgment, why not mercy? 
In the end, just as I described those reconciliation meetings that are more about judgment than mercy, taking a brother before the court so that justice can be served turns everything on its head. Right? Why not rather be wrong? To ask yourself how many times you could have put that advice into effect in your marriage, in your job, in your relationships within our church. Why not rather just take what someone said about your wife, about your husband, about your child, about your friend, about your personality, about your talents, about your food choices, about your hobbies, about your business, about your teaching, about your intellect, right? about your education, about all these things and just brush it off. I'd rather be wronged. Then, you know, why not that rather than to have to exercise your well-honed sense of justice and equity? I think we need a meeting for reconciliation because you said that my wife was short. Were we to do this here in this body, we would find a lot of peace, a lot of blessing, a lot of growth, a lot of maturity. If we were just to say, people sin, people sin with their mouths. I love him. Don't like what he said about my wife, but I love the brother. No one has said that about my wife. She's tall. You're just perfect. You're not taller than me, right? <clears throat> Right, to, to practice mercy, to not give to someone what they have earned and they deserve, to not give to somebody what they have earned by their action, is to be like God. It's to be merciful. We find it hard to be merciful when nothing more than our egos are bruised, but what about these difficult cases that I mentioned earlier? Are we truly to be merciful toward, to forgive those who sexually abused us? those who ran off with another man or a woman, those whose sins are hard for us to even name. If mercy is so difficult for us when it's something little, how is there any hope that we could obey God's command here in James? And for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. I used to subscribe to a, um, to a magazine called Touchstone. And I remember probably over 15, maybe it was 20 years ago, reading an article about a mother who had to work through forgiveness after a baby was conceived in her womb by a rapist. And it's the first I had even ever contemplated that. I mean, it was abstract to me until you read the testimony of a woman who's having to process this situation. Do you not think that this woman's well-honed sense of justice could have led her to terrible sins, the first of which would be to abort her child? Do you not think that she had to continually exercise great mercy toward the father of her child who did this despicable act? Would not that daughter, after she learned of how she was conceived, have had to exercise forgiveness toward her own father. But the root of bitterness 
which most people would commend in this situation. Oh, you should, this is, this gives you allowance to, to really, really explore the bitterness of your hearts and to give into it. That root of bitterness could have immediately run very deep, but no, not in this case. It was just mercy upon mercy. A beautiful picture. It doesn't mean she shouldn't have done everything in her power to ask the state to punish that father. It's not what I'm talking about. The state should punish that father. But on this spiritual level, it's clear her actions were motivated by mercy and forgiveness toward him. And mercy and forgiveness toward him. Not, and, and what proves it is she said, she quoted scripture and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, as she held her daughter in her hands. Does that not take a merciful and forgiving mindset to be able to, to, be able to assess that situation and say what you meant for evil, God meant for good? God meant this all for good. That's intense. Without mercy in this situation, without a realization of God being bringing and able to bring good out of evil, the victim of this man could have been locked up in a prison of resentment and bitterness and anger and vengeance plotting, adding sin upon sin. And yet, it was stopped by mercy triumphing over judgment. Now most of us, but some of us are, most of us are not dealing with such intense situations as that. There are countless times others have sinned against us and we have refused to allow mercy to triumph over judgment. We have not wanted to do the hard work of reconciliation, but rather have enjoyed the intensity of our disgust for someone else's actions against us. And this should not be. How sad is it that when someone sins against us and comes to us to ask for forgiveness... And to begin this process of working toward forgiveness, that we would rather just stay embittered. It kind of makes us angry when we sin against them and they come and try to get it going. Or when they sin against... It just... We'd rather just stay embittered. Stay right where we're at. Forgetting that God Almighty against whom all our sins are an offense has shown us stupendous mercy. Right. Remember three things as you work, or perhaps there's four. I think I have four. Remember four things as you work to practice showing mercy. Remember the mercy that's been shown you. Right. The times when mercy has come to you when you have sinned against somebody, when you've done something terrible, when you've done something stupid. Remember the times when somebody showed you mercy. The flip side of this coin is thinking honestly about yourself. You've sinned countless times against others and they've been long-suffering with you. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. What sweet times of peace when someone genuinely, not scornfully, offers you forgiveness and says, I've forgotten. When what was heinous between a husband and wife is never even again mentioned. It's not held in the pocket for the time when you need the trump card in the argument. Never used as ammunition against one another. And I think this is particularly important 
when it comes to our relationship with our children and the, in, our, in our homes, there, we sin against one another continuously in our homes. Yes, we do. Yes, all of us do. And bitterness between, between mothers and sons can grow intensely quickly. Bitterness between mothers and daughters. It's always the mothers. I don't know. <laughs> Bitterness between fathers and their sons and fathers and daughters. And the child toward their parents. Great bitterness in and, and, uh, not wanting to have the, the Word of God and the reminders of the, the law of God raining down on their head every four minutes. Right? And so bitterness can gr- grow, but remember that you're called to show mercy to one another. When your son sins against you, you are called to forgive him and love him and be tender toward him. Remember, secondly, remember the example of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is the duh moment of the sermon. The mercy exercised by Jesus Christ when he had the perfect case against you. He knew every one of your sins in detail. Right? And every one of those sins was against him. And yet he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. To those who are crucifying him, forgive them. Third, remember God's mercy towards you, the infinite mercy of Jesus Christ, who has much against you, is described this way in Scripture. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest But God being rich in what? Mercy. Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's a glorious passage, isn't it? And the focal point of it is God's mercy. God's mercy towards someone who is dead and serving the prince of the power of the air. Fourth, remember to be more rigorous with yourself and less rigorous with others. Right? Our default should be to be more skeptical when it comes to our own actions and motives, but when it comes to others, more merciful than judgmental. Right? We should always be willing to think the best, even to cover sins with our love. To cover them. Right? That doesn't mean work through them. It doesn't mean get together and dialogue and reconcile and all these things. It just means to cover them. Hide them away with your love. Calvin says of this passage, particularly the final phrase about mercy triumphing over judgment, he says, mercy triumphs when the severity of judgment gives way. 
Mercy triumphs when the severity of judgment gives way. Uh, Fifth, there are five. Remember the warning of this passage. Remember, really remember the warning of this passage. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. If you go through your life being without mercy, you will find that there will be many who rejoice when you are shown no mercy. Right? When you fall, when you are caught up in a situation of your own making, no mercy will come to you by man. Perhaps God, because He's gracious, there will be mercy from Him, but not from sinful man. King David reminds us of, his, of this after he sins, sins against God by taking that census of Israel. He's given three choices for his punishment. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away by enemies, or three days of the sword of the Lord in a pestilence going through Israel. And David chooses the last. And do you remember what he says? How he justifies choosing the last one. He says, please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for His mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man because His mercies are very little. In other words, it is as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you want to receive mercy? Do you have reason to receive mercy? It means you've sinned, right? It means you've spoken beyond what you should have said, right? All those things. Do you you want to receive that mercy? Well, then practice being merciful. Be merciful as God is merciful. We're all pressure cookers of mercilessness. Unwilling to forgive, justified in holding grudges, proud to the core. Let's begin to repent of that and give those around us a taste of the truth of God's word. Mercy will triumph over judgment. Let's see in our mundane lives traces of the truth that is being worked out over the course of what is being worked out over the course of the millennia by God Almighty. All of history is God's mercy triumphing over judgment. That's what He does. Right? And that's what He does with you. His mercy through Jesus Christ will triumph. And that's our great joy, isn't it? Wicked sinners. God is so much against us so justified in every one of His judgments against us, and yet, mercy. Some of us might think that's unjust, but it is not. It is God's will, and He will have mercy on whom He has mercy. Let's pray.